also, we got to talk about it. We got to talk about it. We got to talk about the big thing that's going on right now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The really, really big thing that's happening. Honestly, it's been on my mind for so long. I just, I have to get it out. Few things cause me as much peak anxiety as this thing. So, I didn't kill a single person the first time I played the imposter on Among Us with our willing and fable, not a cult. So, what we're talking about, we, we along with our patrons, um, went on our Discord, which if you are a patron, jump on the Discord if you haven't. If you're not a patron, you should become a patron and join our Discord. It's super fun and definitely not a cult. For tax purposes. For tax purposes and legal reasons. So we all got together and played Among Us, and it was so much fun. It was my first time playing Among Us. And yet, and Rowan was so good. And you guys, I've played this so many times, and I was so bad as the imposter. I was the imposter one time, got caught in the first 30 seconds, and then left poor Maria to be the imposter by herself. But she carried that game anyway. She was amazingly good. Shout out to Maria. But we got to talk about the fact that my first time being the imposter, I was going, okay, let's go. I got this. I was on a team with Tracy's twin, Jamie. We were going to be so great. And then Tracy followed me around for the whole (laughs) game. And I was so stressed and I didn't kill a single person. I was like, I'm going to show her I'm her friend. We're going to be buddies. I'm going to follow her around (laughs) and protect her while she does tasks. (laughs) Uh, Little did I know. (laughs) Our friendship hangs in the balance. You didn't kill me, so. No, I didn't kill you because probably for the same reason you were going to follow me around and take care of me because I just... I couldn't. Well, and also at that point, I remember Seb started following us around too, because he and I tend to just do that towards the end of the game when we're done our tasks. We'll just pick someone and follow them around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I genuinely thought I was helping you out. Yeah, no. Yeah, I was, I was dumb. I had no idea. The fun thing about being the imposter on your first time playing, though, is I didn't know how to do anything, so I could just ask people how to do things while my imposter character was standing near an item. Yep. And people would think I was trying to do them. I, the one thing the game needs is, if, if you've ever played uh, One Night Ultimate Werewolf, there's a role called the Tanner, whose goal is to get called out and killed by the other townspeople. Ooh. And the point of that role is so that if someone's a really, really, really bad werewolf and is like immediately called out on it, a lot of times people will say, no, they're the Tanner. Don't kill them or we lose the game. Because if the Tanner gets killed, everyone else loses. That's cool. Yeah, and that's what Among Us needs, I think. Oh, I love that plan. And we're just going to quickly hop on over to the reality that uh, we are recording this the day before the United States presidential election. And we are filled with terror. A lot of anxiety. So much. And we don't really know... What it's going to be like for you all when you're hearing this episode. So, um, we wish you the best. I hope it's happy and sunny and beautiful where you are. Please stay safe and take care of each other. Okay? And on that note, 
And on that note, hey, that's Tracy Harrison. And that is Rowan Hall. And we are, and always will be, and always have been, the Willing and Fable podcast, a podcast where we talk about ancient myths, local legends, and why stories have staying power. (laughs) Nice job. Thank you. That was a well-timed pause for me to Mm. jump in there. We are on our second Stories from the Sea episode that is sponsored by our friends at White Light Productions Sea Glass Jewelry. And we're going to try to keep our cool this time around about the sponsored episode. We'll be sort of more chill for sure, at least. But I did a thing that I'm really excited about. Okay. So White Light Productions gave us those fabulous goodie bags. In my goodie bag... I got a pair of earrings that are called their trapeze earrings, and they're made of sterling silver. And they sent them to me in these uh, three beautiful blue shades on one pair of earrings. Yes, and I can't believe I'm doing this because I'm such a crow, but I actually packaged them up in the beautiful rose petal paper that they send them in and I Mm -hmm. put them aside so I can give them to my friend when she gets married as kind of like a something blue present. Oh, that is so sweet. I know. I just feel like they're such good presents. They feel so personal because of just all the history everyone kind of has with sea glass and just how delicate and beautiful they are. I, I can't believe I'm doing it, but I have to. I was very selfish. So I wore mine this past weekend when I went wedding dress shopping with a friend of mine who's getting married. And it was the perfect way to balance my outfit because I never wear anything colorful. So I was wearing black and gray with pale jeans. (laughs) And then I wore the necklace and earrings that I got that have a little bit of purple and the lava rock on it, which I learned you can put essential oils on the lava rock and it will diffuse it. Um, So honestly, we can't recommend White Light Productions enough. You guys know we are on a personal mission to support handmade in America businesses. And we are so excited, genuinely, genuinely excited to be partnering with a company that makes such beautiful gifts in time for the holidays. I wasn't feeling in the holiday mood. And now that it is the very beginning of November and I kind of had this gift idea. I am I'm switching. I'm trying to switch it over. I'm getting in the spirit. So if you guys are all also starting to think about presents or maybe presents for yourself, we have a coupon code for you. Uh, White Light Productions gave us a coupon code for 10% off your order if you use the code WFFALL10. So that's WFFALL10 when you order on their website, which is seaglass.us. That's spelled S E A G L A S S dot US. And please check it out and please use our code because we want you to be happy. And frankly, we want them to think that we're really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we do. And if you ever need to find the link or the code, you can find it in the show notes as well as on the recommendations page on our website. We have all of our recommendations we talk about in the show as well as promo codes on that page. Because we're sponsored. All right. I won't do that anymore. (laughs) You got your last one in, and I appreciate that. Well, I have one more, I think, in me. I think I get three. I've got it. I mean, I've got at least two more in me, but I'll try to dial it down to one. 
Okay, okay, okay. So, you know what? It's our second Stories from the Sea episode, and we are covering two mythical figures from the ocean that are often linked, and they are definitely not mermaids. Maybe. Definitely. Definitely maybe. I think that's all the introduction we can give them without kind of, like, going into our individual stories. Yeah, I'll jump into mine. So I'll start mine with um, a section of lyrics from a song that I love that I've been listening to on repeat this whole week. You always have the best lyric quotes. It's freaking ridiculous. I love good lyrics, man. I love it. You are 100% that girl with the lined notebook with lyrics and like doodles drawn around your notes. And I love it. Yeah. Yeah. You know who I am. You know what I am. I I carried a a journal with me 24-7 through all of high school. Oh, tell them what your D&D notes always look like. Oh, (laughs) I always, I mean, I do just that. I use um, my iPad, but I write out all of our D&D notes from the session. Sometimes in the perspective of the character, usually I I get tired of that and just write the notes as they're happening, but I always add pictures to represent everything going on. So if we go to a, a manor, I'll draw the manor and the borders. If we see a monster, I'll try and draw a depiction of it. I just make it feel like field notes is what I try to make it feel like. It's crazy and fabulous and beautiful. And I, who never take notes, not ever, I do occasionally, but mostly no. I've, I've been, yeah, I've been worse about it because Emily is so consistent that I've gotten lazy. All right. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. So I am going to uh, read you a section of lyrics from the song Rusalka Rusalka Wild Rushes by the Decemberists. Rusalka Rusalka, your arms out of water, your hair like an alien bloom. Dark eyed Rusalka, your brow trust in flowers, pale in a liminal moon. Mm. So this week, clearly, I am covering Rusalka, which is the singular form. So you'll see a Rusalka, but many Rusalki. So I'm going to start with my story, and then we'll go into the history of Rusalki. Bring it. The early June air was warm and clear, and the dusting of clouds across the horizon glowed vibrant hues of pink, orange, and blue as the sun dipped below the waterline. The wild rushes at the edge of the water danced lazily in the wind, swaying to a song I couldn't hear. I sat on a large rock, watching the sun sparkle on the water as the waves crashed onto the shore. But I felt numb as I stared out to the horizon. I wiped the tears from my face, evidence of recent heartbreak clear as day to anyone around. But I was alone. I'd come here for solitude, for a quiet place to feel the way my heart seemed to split in two within my chest. I was so distracted that I didn't see her at first. I don't know how long she was there watching me from the water, but I saw her when she emerged. Her body rose from the sea, and slowly she walked towards the shore, and I could see her full form. She was thin and lithe. Her skin was so pale it was nearly translucent. Long, dark hair fell down to her waist in waves and the tresses were tinged with the green hue in the fading sunlight. She wore a soft, sheer white robe that seemed to wrap around her body like mist. But it was her eyes that caught my attention. 
unusually large and round on her delicate face, they were filled with a sadness that touched my aching heart. Be not afraid, sister of mine. I heard her voice softly in my mind. It was a gentle caress that felt like a hand stroking my still, wet cheek. I know all too well the pain that you feel. I can sense the heartache in you. I once sat on these very shores and felt the same pain as you. I allowed myself to be overcome by the agonizing sadness. To drown in the unyielding ache of it all. I walked into the ocean that day, never to return with breath in my lungs. Do you understand? There was a catch in my breath as I felt a twinge of fear for the first time since seeing the woman. What could she have planned for me? Were her words a warning or a threat? But, she added, I do not wish that for you. There is still life for you to live, and should you wish it, vengeance to be had. A memory clicked into place at those words. A story my grandmother told me when my brother and I played on these very shores as children. She warned us of the Rusalki that lived in the waters. She warned us to be careful, for they could be kind or they could be vicious. And she warned my brother to be particularly wary when he played in the waters. A Rusalka was nearly impossible to resist. Her voice would lure you into the waves before you even knew you were moving. Then she would wrap her slippery arms around you and drag you down into the depths until you drowned. My grandmother told us that they did this as revenge against all men, for they had been wronged by men in life, and that pain led them to the waters where they died. The waves lapped at her thighs as the Rusalka stood before me in the water. She was close enough now that I could see the blue tint to her skin echoed in the unnatural color of her eyes. I thought about what she offered me. Vengeance. A chance to not just end the burning ache in my chest, but to get back at the one who hurt me so badly. A chance to take back my power, to feel like a goddamn person again. She offered me strength, wrapped in a veil of cruelty. Did I want that? Did I want to be the cause of pain, to hurt someone worse than they hurt me, just so I could feel something again? I knew the answer as I looked into her eyes. I did. I wanted it more than anything, and she knew it. She sensed the need in me, and she smiled. It shall be done, she said softly as she slipped back into the waves. I stood on the shore for a long time, waiting to feel regret, but that feeling never came. No sense of shame or wrongness creeped into my chest. In fact, just the opposite. I felt lighter. Perhaps that was wrong. I knew what I had just committed to. The cruelty of it all was clear as day in my mind. Yet, despite all of that, I smiled as I walked away from the shore. 
Ooh, we love it. Rusalka. We love the Rusalka. <laughs> I love your telling of it. It Thank I you. I felt as if I was on the misty shore. Like the whole story kind of had that cool feeling to it, that softness. Yes, I really struggled at first. Like I was laying in bed at night thinking like, what am I going to write for my story? Do I want to highlight? Like what parts of the Rusalka legend do I want to highlight? And then as soon as I sat down and started writing it, I was like, okay, the, the pieces that I'm picking, the pieces that I want to tell the most are that familiar story of the Rusalka being someone who drags men underwater. Mm-hmm. But I, I wanted to tie in that they can be kind and I, I wanted to tie in that they don't torture women so much and kind of bring that idea to it and and make it so that they're not just this killing machine that's just hungry to destroy the men around them but there's more to them and the backstory of their tale being they are often women who somehow lost their lives near water and are thus kind of doomed to be what they are there is this long history of women mythical creatures that are female especially in northern europe who are gorgeous and kill men and when mm-hmm. the men tell the story they are often a bit more evil intended i think and when the women tell the story they tend to you at least know why they're doing it it's not just blanket evil and i would say for a lot of them when women tell the story like exactly like you said there's a clear motive or it's it can almost be protecting women right which is not to say that i need evil mythological women to be justified i'm really okay with mythology being scary and sometimes murderous but it does make for a much richer story when the villain has reasons do i need my knight in shining armor to be a raven-haired, pale-skinned spirit of death from the ocean? No. Do I want that? Yes. 100%. Yes. Do I need any of this? No. Do they need to be justified? No. Do I want this babe to be my protector all day, every day? Oh, yeah. (laughs) 10,000%. So aside from the December song that I talked about, which everyone should go listen to, there's another piece of music famously inspired by the Rusalki. That is Antonin Dvorak's Rusalka Opera, which I listened to while writing my story this mm. week. Yeah, it's his. apparently it's his most famous opera. Is it as haunting as I imagine it would be? Yeah, it's cool. So I did a, a little bit of digging. It's basically they... In the beginning of the story, from what I understand, the Rusalka is, like, kind and benevolent and falls in love with a prince who then falls in love with someone else, and then she turns into the vengeful creature. Mm -hmm. So, to quote the San Francisco opera, they say, Based on the same story that inspired The Little Mermaid, Rusalka is a heartbreaking tale of love and sacrifice. This operatic fantasy looks beyond the storybook world of happily ever after, to expose truths that are powerfully and painfully human. So if you like opera, go check it out. But now for the story of the creature herself. 
The history of Rusalki is varied, with different regions not only having different origin stories, but the creature herself appears and acts differently in each region. Mythology! Yeah! Before the 19th century, Rusalki were seen as benevolent fertility spirits who didn't really interfere much with humans. They would come to the shores once a year, dance in the moonlight, bestow life to the fields, and then return to the water. They were generally treated with respect and were not considered something to be feared. The big difference between them and other water spirits, such as mermaids, is that they are not depicted with tails. They have fully human forms, even though, once again, their appearance changes based on the region. So they were just fertility spirits, which is so different from what we know today. I'm not surprised. I, I Again, there are so many mythological women <laughs> that started <laughs> out that way. I don't want to harp on it, but it's just no, true. No, you're, you're right, you're right. Especially when we're going into, you know, the British Isles, to the Scandinavian countries. We've got Russia, places where Vikings traveled, that whole kind of cold sphere mm-hmm. of the world. That's that's my corner of women starting happy and becoming evil. Surely it happened in other places, but I, I always associate that kind of transition with mythology from that sphere. Yeah, and you're not wrong here. So Rusalki were originally part of a pagan religion, but starting in the 19th century, their story began to change. And this is believed to coincide with Christianity becoming more widespread and overshadowing the pagan religions of the regions. That wasn't that long ago, actually. No, no. uh, 1800s. Wow. Starting from this time, we begin to see the Rusalki described as undead spirits of the water. These women, usually virgins, either died by suicide, drowning, or violence in or near water and were thus doomed to live out their time on Earth as a Rusalka. Often this time was finite and would eventually come to an end. What? Yeah. They're not immortal. They're almost living out a sentence for their quote-unquote crime or what was done to them. Like a purgatory? Yes. Okay. Sometimes a Rusalka could be allowed to move on if her death was wrongfully done to her and was thusly avenged. Which mm-hmm. which we love. We love a good revenge mm-hmm. story. Often, the story of a Rusalka revolved around the betrayal of a husband or lover or him causing her death. And thus, they would rely on the living to help seek vengeance and end her suffering. Rusalka were considered unclean souls and thus forced to spend the remainder of their time on Earth, however much that might be, as this creature. Would the idea be if she was killed before her time, but she was supposed to, according to the grand scheme, die at yep. 74, she'd have to live out those years? That's what I gathered. It was that they died, quote unquote, before their time and had to live out, quote, the remainder of their time on Earth as a Rusalka. But it was finite. It cool. would end. I found one source... Slavic Chronicles that claims, quote, another group of myths claim that the Rusalka are water nymphs who marry the male water spirits who live in great castles under the water and who can change their shape at will. 
a totally different version of the Rusalka. I only found that one once, but wanted to include it. Sometimes they're described as solitary creatures, but there are other versions of the story that describe the Rusalki as traveling together. And to quote Gods and Goddesses fandom, Rusalki generally live in little groups in the wild, particularly around water where they love to swim, dive, splash, and play together in lakes, pools, rivers, and mill races. Unmarried girls from a particular neighborhood, while alive, went around in little bands socializing together as working bees and singing and dancing together at important festivals. The Rusalki, also mostly young girls, were assumed to do likewise. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like there is some overlap in that version with Greek nereads and naiads. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Some have said that Rusalki are similarly equivalent to Slavic nymphs. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I disagree with that. I think that's kind of apples to oranges. Okay. Because the Rusalki are violent apples and the nymphs are useless oranges. Yeah, and it's just fundamentally different contexts. You know, the the nymphs exist in the context of gods and demigods and mortals who have god powers and just this whole pantheon, whereas the Rusalki are in just a fundamentally different setup. And so, you know, what are you comparing to when you say they're like nymphs? Exactly. I think of nymphs as having no agency. They're sort of put in these stories to be beautiful women who, yes, have powers over a lake or a river or trees, but they're really just there so that other gods can have sex with them or fight over them or use them as tools to a greater plot versus the Rusalki, which I don't want to call them gods because that's also sort of they're defined Incorrect, as spirits. But, right. They have, But they have a greater power in the grand scheme of the mythos. Mm-hmm. I think I might have restated what you said. So you're, good job, Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad we're on the same page. Sometimes Rusalki lure children with fruit sprinkled with honey. But before you get too nervous, I couldn't find any description of them harming children They simply enjoyed the company of the children and liked including them in their games. However, it was men and not children who had to fear the Rusalka. She could change her appearance to appease any man and would lure him into the water and drown him in the depths below. Sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes that's what she would do. But I'm going to jump into the differences of the Rusalka based on the different regions her stories told. In Ukraine, they were often linked with water, while in Belarus, they're linked with the forest and the field. In Russia, they're seen as women who came out of the water on Kupola night and participated in festivities without causing harm to anyone. But in harsher climates, they're seen as wild and wicked, often described as thin, large-breasted women. Gentler climates tend to describe them as helpful and playful with humans, while other areas just describe them as pale little girls with green hair and long arms. In Poland, water rusalki are young and fair-haired, but forest rusalki are more mature 
with dark black hair. But in either case, water or forest, if you got too close to one, they would change and distort and their hair would turn green. So you get too close to her and she ties herself up in knots? Like, with anxiety, she's like, don't come too close, now I'm green. (laughs) Yeah, social anxiety, ooh. (laughs) Um, It was described more as, like, she would become kind of monstrous and and almost vicious. Um, And sometimes it was described as her eyes would start glowing, like, fiery green, which I don't totally know what that means. But I way prefer the idea of she's just like, oh, no, don't look at me, no. And, like, is shy. I prefer fiery, (laughs) angry, don't come near me. (laughs) Hey, we can have both. You can be socially anxious and channel that through brash attitudes. I'm going to change and distort and my hair's going to turn green. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Here's my favorite thing, though. In so many of these cases across all the regions, you would see that the Rusalki would drown them. But kind of equally, the other way they killed men is by tickling them to death. You're joking. (laughs) No, I'm so serious. I saw it over and over and over, and I love that, because what is a worse way to die? Name one. Name a worse way to die than tickled to death. Uh, Anything going into your eyeballs. No, that that seems faster. Tickled Um, to death? That's horrible. I mean... Are you... It's basically a form of suffocation, right? You're just being tickled so you can't breathe? Don't make me think about it. I don't know. (laughs) Listen, (laughs) I think suffocating in a tight space would be worse than suffocating via a beautiful spirit suffocating you with tickles. When's the last time you got tickled? Tell me it was like a fun experience for you. I don't, I can't remember a horrible experience with tickling. I, I guess this is really revealing a lot about me. I hate the feeling of being tickled so much. I know. I... Don't even like, you know how people love when someone like gently brushes their fingers across like your hand or your arm? I hate that. I hate that so much. If you try to tickle Tracy, she's going to um, probably punch you. Tie herself up in knots. <laughs> She'd change and distort and her hair would turn green. My hair's going to turn green. My eyes are going to turn greener. And <laughs> I'll hiss. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You wronged this woman, so now I'm gonna tickle you to death. Tickle, tickle, tickle. (laughs) Whoever, like, made that part of the canon of Rusalka feels how I feel about tickling. And I'm appreciative of it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So the last thing I want to talk to you about is Rusalka Week. It's also sometimes referred to as Green Week, but the two aren't exactly the same thing but they seem to overlap in the time they occur and some of the traditions that happen during the week the rusalki were considered to be most dangerous during the rusalka week in early june this is why it is forbidden to swim during this week due to fear of the creatures dragging you down to your deaths Hmm. during this time the rusalki are able to leave the water and swing on the branches of a birch or willow tree at night. They sit in the branches of the tree and comb their long hair, which always stays wet because some say that if it dries out, they will die. Thus, they cannot stay on land too long. To quote livingseason.com, 
Birch trees are especially significant on this holiday because they were thought to harbor the spirits of the dead. Sometimes, birch trees were decorated and carried around, or birch branches were brought into houses. Sometimes a birch tree was drowned at the end of the week. This article also said that women would pledge friendship in front of birch trees, or offer up fried eggs and beer, either for fertility, or possibly to appease the Rusalki. You never pledged friendship with me in front of a birch tree. To be fair, I think we may have as kids. <laughs> I, yeah, actually. <laughs> I'm not ruling that out. <laughs> I can't say that it was in front of a birch tree, but I can guarantee there was a birch tree as a witness. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rusalki are also said to be found dancing in the fields under the moonlight. Any passerby who should be unfortunate enough to witness this sight must dance with them until they die. At the end of the week, towns and villages near bodies of water hold ceremonial burials and banishings to send the Rusalki back to the water. This practice was maintained and celebrated until the 1930s when it was ended by Soviet forces. That all sounds so fun. Right? That sounds amazing, but it doesn't seem like it's really done much anymore. If there's anything working on this episode has made me want, it is to just dance around by moonlight. Right? I want to dance around in a circle with my fearsome water friends in the moonlight and then go sit in a birch tree and brush my hair. I do not want to be perpetually damp, though. No, God, that's so true. Worse than death by tickling, I would say. Well, yeah, because that, you know, death by tickling ends perpetually damp by its very nature is perpetual. perpetual. <laughs> yeah, but the sentence of being a Rusalka does end eventually. You could just be damp for 40 years, but you do get to kill bad men. Yeah, I'd still choose that over death by tickling. I'd choose it just for fun. <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> Everyone should. All right. So that is my story of the Rusalki. I fell in love with these creatures. I only vaguely knew of them in the sense that, like, I knew they drowned men and were water women. But I love these babes. I love every version of their story. I love being the fertility spirits. I love the playful ones. I love the fearsome ones. I love the anxious ones. The anxious ones. I truly identify with the anxious ones. <laughs> <laughs> I am a socially anxious Rusalka. Hi. Nice <laughs> to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't push her too far or she'll drown you. But only if you're a man. Otherwise, she'll just pledge friendship in front of a birch tree. <laughs> yeah, it's one or the other, really. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a gamble. That's how you and I became friends. You were anxious, and I was like, no, we're doing this. And you were like, stop it. And I was like, we're in front of a birch tree. We're friends now. That's actually <laughs> true. <laughs> That's not even a bit. <laughs> That's literally, like, how it happened. I remember at one point us being kids, and you being like, stop apologizing for everything. And I was like, sorry. And you are like, come on. <laughs> I was that kid that was like, oh, I don't know. I'm just scared. And you're like, of what? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot have helped that because I was convinced there was a witch that lived in the woods just behind our elementary school playground. 
Yeah, you did all the research on that. And then we found some mystery. It must have been like a hunting lodge in your backyard, but we found a mystery house as kids and we're convinced it was a witch's hut. No, actually, that was not a hunting lodge. That was a house that the gentleman who lives on the other side of the hill from us. So uh, my parents' house is in the woods. And uh, if you go into the backyard, it's on a hill of woods. And then you can go down the other side and there's houses on the other side. And there's acres and acres of trees in between. And this gentleman built a house for his mother in the woods and filled it with all of her things and it was this beautiful kind of like mid-century modern house and she never wanted to move in oh my god so there was a spooky house in the middle of the woods filled with human things with no humans inside it was in the middle of the woods in that your view was trees but if you just drove for five seconds you'd be in the countryside on your way to a Wegmans I in my memory there was no like driveway or anything to it I guess is what I'm there was but it was so overgrown that okay now unless you knew what to look for now it's coming together I was so young when we found it I just was like spooky like I didn't it was a good spooky house it was I think I got kissed when I was very young inside that spooky house that is so cute and so it is you. real cute. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. It's your turn. I know how excited you are about your story, so I want to hear it. My story this week is also about slightly spooky water ladies. Oh my gosh, what a surprise and definitely not the theme of the episode. Exactly. <laughs> and we're just going to go into the story and then we'll chat afterwards, just like Tracy did. You know, there was a time before I was born when the fish off the coast were so plentiful that my grandfather would say that they practically leapt into the nets begging you to take them out of the overcrowded ocean. You could not take more than a step into the water without bumping into one of the slimy beasties, he'd say. But it hasn't been that way for a generation. My father is still a fisherman by trade and my grandfather warms the seas in the house, moving from one to the next as he takes his THD. My mother died giving birth to me, so it's a house of man. That's the thing. On cold nights, if my grandfather's had too much to drink or my dad's looking like he bears the way of the world, then the old man will tell the story of how it came to be this way. I'll do my best to retell it as he does. Right. Everything's beautiful in the past, you know. The, the memory repaints the house and there's never more than the occasional thing needs repairs. The boat is clean and crisp in the water, and then the shore, it never crashes too high against the cliffs that hold our family home. He built it on his own, board by board, after he ran off to the sea against his mum's wishes. Finn, that's my grandfather, is a bright, excited man full of youth and passion. A bit old to be unmarried for his time, and with more than a few of the village ladies looking at him smiling, but... He has no eyes for them. He only has eyes for the sea and spends all his days fishing, his weekends at the market and his nights sleeping sound. That is, until he heard the music. Now, everyone knows the stories of the fae and everyone knows that music spells disaster in the end, but everyone also knows that young men follow it to their destiny, whatever that may be. 
So, Finn grabbed his knife and took the narrow winding path a long way down to get to the beach below. The echoing singing grew louder as he crept from massive rock to new hiding place, hoping that the brightness of the full moon would not expose his sneaking. But Finn had a sneaking suspicion of who might be gathering down below his home on the midnight shore. But it was only then that his dreaming was confirmed by the silvery light. It was a gathering of silkies. The seals that swim to the shore remove their soft skin like a garment and step on the sand in the unearthly, beautiful forms of men and women. If you've ever seen a seal's eyes and wondered why they seem to peer back with such understanding, then you have your answer. These fairy shapeshifters were known for their revels on these shores and twas their singing that made the fish come so plentifully to the sailors. I don't know how he managed the courage, but Finn was able to steal a sealskin dropped on the ground by a fair woman with long hair. It went just as legend promised it would. Finn hid the seal skin in the house and the next morning a forlorn-looking, naked maiden made her way up the path to his door. You see, if a sailor manages to steal the fur of a selkie, they can no longer shift their sheep and follow their family into the water. The selkie must go to the man who stole her skin and live with him and marry him, only leaving if she's able to find her pelt again. The stories always say that the silky folk fall in love with the sailor, and this one does as well. But my grandfather, in his most drunken nights, will confess that she never loved him until she gave birth to my father, Rianne. They lived happily for seven years, Finn, confident enough in his hiding place that he would go out to sea and sell his bountiful catch at the market and come home with gift upon gift for his beautiful silky wife. But one night, when Rianne was six, Finn came home and the floorboards were pulled up and his silky was gone. It's a heartbreak for silkies to leave their dark-eyed children with those telltale signs of webbing more prevalent between their fingers. Perhaps they might take them and uh, use some fairy magic to let them swim, but they never do. Finn became a bitter, cold man after that. All the goodness of father had left him, because certainly his son's silky eyes reminded him of his wife gone missing. And you would think that this would be the marker of their misfortune, but it is not. The catch was even more plentiful after she left. Most like because she was a mother and never forgot the needs of her son, and the seals might appear not far from Finn's boat on a stormy sea, (laughs) but never came too close to the silky catcher who lived by the cliffs. Not long after, though, the fish went away completely. Nothing to catch for months on end, and Finn began to fear that he and his son would starve or else have to move away from the blessed and cursed sea. So he drank and walked the shores at night. It was on one of these nights that he met the Finn wife hag. Finn knew this creature from the sailor's stories, a violent and ugly monster of the sea who feared the cross, lusted for silver, 
and above all, hunted for a mortal husband to keep her young and beautiful. Hello, fisherman, she said, as she rose from the inky black forever of the nighttime ocean. Ugh, she was a horror, and Finn had to steal himself to keep from recoiling at her ghastly sight. The creature looked like a woman and a fish together, but not like any sort of sensual mermaid, a fish for swimming and a woman where it counts, no, no. She was all things, everywhere. Two massive flat far eyes blinked at him with a double eyelid, and her mouth was curled and lipless with needle teeth glinting as she smiled and her skin was fleshy like some deep ocean thing, and shining with a sheen that defied anything Finn had ever touched. As the hag swept her stringy black hair from her inhuman face, he thought he saw an extra finger whip to each hand, long claws clacking. Well, without fish, you are merely a man. A nothing man, an empty man. Her eyes grew, and her fluttering gills on her neck just flared wide as if to emphasise her point. I do not know if he was ever bold enough to speak to the creature. He never says, but the thin wife from the depths of the sea spoke to the darkness in his soul when she reminded him of his fear that the Selkies cursed the shore for stealing their girl. He feared the fish would never return, as long as his lion temptress wife lived among those weaves. And so, staggering away that night, he made a plan as he crawled up the steep cliff to his home. The hag had made a deal. If you do this thing for me, the one who curses your fortune will no longer, she whispered. It was another fortnight before Finn could manage even to prepare for the deed, and another week still before the time was right. All the while, he watched Rianne grow thinner, and the loneliness in his heart hardened into hatred. When he was bold enough, the moon was full and the sulkies were dancing upon the shore. They always did when the moon was high and bright, and each time before, when he came by stumbling drunk, the sulkies would run into the sea, his wife trailing behind them. But tonight, his head was clear, and he was a hunter accustomed to the ways of the creatures of the water. Finn hid behind the rocks, his long fisherman's knife in his hands, familiar as the length of his own arm. After their dance, he knew those hated things would gather their pelts and dive into the sea. But his wife would wait. Her melancholy eyes would look up at their home as they always did, to the window where Rianne slept and crystalline tears would pour down from her. But still Finn waited. There was only a moment to strike, and he mustn't hesitate. He heard the sea hag's whispering words in his ears. 
Will you let your son starve while you pine after a creature that abandoned you? Finn leapt from behind the rock with a growl, catching his silky in her seal form as she made to dive into the water. She thrashed and cried and Finn tossed her flapping into the sand. But screaming was of no use. Her family had already swum away to give her peace to grieve. The fisherman used his blade, as only a practised hunter can. Swift and specific and without feeling, he slashed between the seal's eyes as they widened, pleading up at him. He cut down the length of the animal's soft body, peeling the magical pelt back as blood pooled within its bones. His hunter's precision failed him then. Nestled amongst the ruined body of the seal, his wife lay dying by his hand. She was nestled in the transformative pelt like a baby in arms, crying her love and tears despite it all, and she never looked away from him, but could not keep her hands from desperately trying to pull herself back together to re-net the magic that was only now weakened flesh. Finn understood then, as he would not allow himself to consider before, that to skin a silky meant the end of their life, not merely their magic. He could not keep her on land any more than he could keep the bleeding woman alive on shore. He stole from her, as he stole from the sea, mad with the belief that he was owed something if he could only figure out how to take it. He plunged his knife into her chest. The pair never spoke as he watched her die, and she watched him live. Her last breath gasped, and the fisherman stood and gave one hard yank on the tail of the pelt so that her human form slid out into a crumple on the sand. Finn did not look back as he marched along the beach, the bloody fur slung over his shoulder. When he found the Finn wave hag, Finn tossed his wife's sealskin onto the shoreline and stood before his benefactor. She laughed and laughed for so long that the man imagined the sun would begin to rise before she stopped her gasping howling. With her long, webbed hands, she picked up the pelt and turned the sink back beneath the waves. It was my curse that kept the fish away. Now that you've done this thing for me, I will lift it. She turned her inhuman head and Finn followed her gaze. There, amongst the waves, were the dozens of black, silky eyes peering back at him. But they have a curse worse than mine. As long as you fish here, the silkies who rule these waters will be sure that you never eat again. A shame. You were a powerful hunter of the seas, fisherman. And now you are just a man. An empty man. My grandfather never stepped foot 
on the beach again, never took out his boat or left the high cliffs that hold our home. My father is a fisherman now, and he's the only one in the village who can catch a single one. They say that it's because the silkies recognise their blood in his veins. My father swears up and down that this is all just a folk tale. A story that an old man told to explain a lost love and a very, very hard life. I'll never know, I suppose. But when the moon is high and full, I do hear their singing. I am so glad I went first. I would not, I would not want to follow that. Are you kidding? That was amazing. It's, it's such a beautiful retelling of what I think of as the classic Selkie tale. And there is a classic Selkie tale, to be sure. It was so beautiful. So heartbreaking. I just sat and stared at Rowan like she was telling me the bedtime story I always want to hear. (laughs) Thank you. I, uh, I've had this story in my head a long time. Selkies are sort of the mythical creature in my family. I always think of you when I think of Selkie. We had a snake, a pet snake in my family when I was young, and her name was Selkie because she shed her skin as a snake. <laughs> That's such a clever name. Mm-hmm. She was a good little snake, too. So... For anyone who did not know what the heck I was talking about, Selkies are shapeshifters who, through possession of their seal skin, are able to transform into seals on land and beautiful, lithe humans who dance on the shores by moonlight or bask in the sun by day. If you're thinking this sounds very similar in some ways to Rasulka, you would be correct. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, um, although... Can they do, can Selkies do this whenever they want? Because Rusalka, it's pretty much there's only one week of the year that they're able to leave the water. Funny you should ask that, Tracy, as my next (laughs) sentence is, some stories say that ocean conditions must be right, or they only have the ability every seven years. But no matter the circumstances, without their seal pelt, they cannot transform. While female selkies are considered gentle and beautiful, sometimes male selkies are violent. Male selkies can be summoned to the shore if a woman cries seven tears into the sea, and there are few tales of them drowning mortals, though those are not as common. Walking along the rocky shore, you might recognize a selkie as they are a bit larger than traditional animal seals. And you'll see it in their knowing eyes. Ooh, okay. I want to stare into a seal's knowing eyes. Seals do have... They do. They, they really do. They're, they're sea dogs. Yes, we have dogs, we have water dogs, and we have sky puppies. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and in case anyone was confused, that would be dogs, seals, and bats. I love bats so much. Please don't get me started. They're such cute little huggy babies. Go listen to uh, the Ologies podcast. Her uh, episode on bats will make you so passionate about bats and how 
sweet and cute and adorable and helpful and necessary they are. Okay, but also, if you're not already obsessed with bats because of Stella Luna, the amazing childhood book, then get out. (laughs) Get out and read a book. I love bats so much. We've had a couple bats fly into our house and get stuck. Not permanent stuck, but it is quite scary trying to get a bat out of your house, mostly because they get so scared and they're very flappy and they do have, you know, claws. And so you don't want them stuck, but otherwise they're quite sweet. Back to seals. (laughs) The Selkie myth is most associated with Orkney and Shetland, and there are versions that extend through the rest of Scotland, Ireland, Iceland, and Scandinavia. They also go by the name Silkies or Selchies. According to the Scottish National Dictionary, the term is the diminutive for the Scots language word Selch, which means gray seal. My myth was inspired by an ancient Celtic telling featuring Neil Macadrum. He steals a seal skin while the Selkies dance by moonlight, and though they marry and have children, his wife eventually leaves him for the sea. That is what many people think of as the definitive mm-hmm. Selkie story. To quote the 1994 movie The Secret of Roan Inish, that features Selkie mythology. Once a Selkie finds its skin again, neither chains of steel nor chains of love can keep her from the sea. There's another Selkie story from the Faroe Islands that runs a bit contrary to my tale. In this, once a Selkie wife returns to the sea, she can never come to live on land again, even if she wanted to. So, one day, when the fisherman is caught in a storm, the fey woman finds her seal skin and puts it on to save him, but this act of love dooms them to be apart for the rest of their days. And this is a notable version of the tale because it shows that there is love between the mortal and the selkie, not just entrapment. Mm-hmm. Touted as one, if not the most famous selkie tale, is the great selkie of Sulskiri. God, I hope I'm saying that right. Or the gray selkie of Sulskiri. I tried two ways, (laughs) y'all. One's gotta be close. Maybe. (laughs) Who knows? Not us. This isn't a story that I had heard until my research, but the ballad is beautiful. The music is lost now, so I read it as a poem, and it's told from the point of view of a male selkie. To quote Orkney Jar, the heritage of the Orkney Islands website, the ballad, quote, recounts the tale of a young Orcadian maiden who falls in love with an elusive Selkie man. She has a child by him, but shortly after, the Selkie man disappears, leaving her alone with her baby son. Some years later, the maiden comes across a gray seal by the shore. She realizes the creature before her is none other than her selkie lover. But he once again vanishes beneath the waves, only to return again seven years later. After giving his son a golden chain, the boy leaves his mother and goes with his father to sea. The woman marries, and sometime later, when her husband is out hunting, he shoots two seals. One old and gray, the other younger. 
Around the neck of the young seal was a gold chain, which the hunter takes home to give his wife. Upon receiving the gift, she realizes her son is dead. That is so sad in the way I feel like so many of these stories are, where it's just like, it's just like unfair. Yeah, but I love it. I love it. Also, uh, it's not, it's not included in this story, but so often mortals are in relationships with selkies because they trap them into it. Oh, yeah, that part's not great. I just mean like, you know, that that just heart rate of like, just go back, like, just don't, just don't kill them. Like, I don't know, there's just that, that, that kind of heartbreak feeling in these, in these classic versions of these myths. I like the heartbreak feeling that comes with a lot of ocean mythology. As someone who hates feeling, who hates feeling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love it for the exploration of human emotion in this, like, objective sense, but I don't like feeling sad. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. I like happy things, but objectively, I appreciate the stories for what they are and wouldn't, wouldn't ever want to change them. Does that, like, make sense at all? It does. I understand you. Thank you for understanding me. <laughs> <laughs> The children of a selkie and a mortal can be easily identified by the webbing between their fingers and toes that is said to carry through generations of descendants from one of these marriages. Walter Trail Dennison, an Orkney folklorist and antiquarian, published a, quote, semi-mythical story in the 1893 paper The Scottish Antiquary. This tale detailed an account with a woman who after marrying a sulky man, had children and grandchildren with such webbing. Despite the family's efforts to clip off the extra skin, it re-knit itself until it hardened into a, quote, horny texture to resist injury. Is there any kind of medical disorder that would cause extra skin to grow between your fingers? Thank you so much for saying that, Tracy. To quote CelticWeddingRings.com... <laughs> I, I just have the best questions for, for not reading ahead at all. <laughs> to quote CelticWeddingRings.com, which has a shockingly awesome section on mythology, quote, It is widely speculated that, like many myths from all cultures... Tales of selkies were created as a way to explain the unexplainable. There were children sometimes born with webbed fingers and toes, faces resembling that of a seal, and sometimes scaly skin that smelled fishy. Today, there are scientific names for all of the above. So, one of the conditions that some people speculated would cause what they considered the seal-like face mm -hmm. was a disorder where a child would be born missing part of their skull or have their brain be undersized so it would cause the structure of their head to be a little different okay um some people speculated that you know things like eczema which can cause scaly skin totally mm -hmm. might point to that there's there's lists upon lists and of course no one knows exactly but Yes, it is often talked about that this was a way of explaining very normal human things. That makes a lot of sense to me that you would just see, especially in regions where 
it could be, well, especially in regions where things like eczema could be, you could genetically get it and then it just be worsened by the weather or families having lines of a medical genetic condition that's passed down and down and down. And then that would be because great, great grandmother Agatha married a Selkie. Exactly. We all have, like, it makes a lot of sense. And I read that some people just naturally have slightly more webbing between their fingers than others. And even though it wouldn't be particularly noteworthy, like you wouldn't look at someone's hands and go, oh, you have webbed hands because you're a fish person. No. But if you're telling these stories and it's becoming kind of part of the mythology, then you could say, look, my my fingers are slightly more webbed than yours. I'm staring at my hands trying to figure out if they're webbed. Oh, that's what I did when I was reading it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to say they look pretty unwebbed from this cell phone video. (laughs) (laughs) Can confirm you're not related to a selkie. Ah, beans. (laughs) Gotta keep searching. Gotta keep finding my mythical (laughs) (laughs) great-great-grandma. That was funny, and then it got funnier as I just imagined various (laughs) creatures that could have been your great-great-grandmother. Right? Right? I'm I'm going hunting for her. I'm going to figure out who she is. (laughs) We'll just write down a list of all your traits and then Mm -hmm. make them even more dramatic until they become mythological, and then we'll find the corresponding creature. Or god. God, ideally. I I mean, yeah, ideally, given... I mean, we talked about before... Biology is like, no, but Tracy's like, yes. (laughs) Her immune system is a little lackluster, but that's part of the mythology. (laughs) It's part of the mythology that I rolled a nat one on my con score. Oh, but you rolled so high on your, uh, let's say wisdom. That feels good. (laughs) I love you. (laughs) It's not charisma. (laughs) It's probably not intelligence. Definitely not strength. Definitely not dexterity. (laughs) I'm a terrible PC. (laughs) Okay, okay, hold up. I'm gonna I'm gonna get real with you and then we're gonna talk about selkies again. Okay. First of all, you are quite charismatic. I know a lot of people who meet you for two seconds and think you're just the best. And I can confirm that because I've known you for decades. I knew you when we both had bad braces. So, like, we know your charisma score is high. (laughs) Thank you. Also, your wisdom score is quite high because sometimes I'm over here going, I'm going to make this dumb choice. And you go, let's think about this. (laughs) (laughs) I know that your intelligence score is high because in this day and age, intelligence is just knowing how to Google and you are the best Googler. Oh, my God. I love this. This is, like, my favorite segment we've ever done. Yeah, but here's the thing. I can't defend your dexterity at all. No, no. I fall down my stairs more than any person should fall down their own stairs. Listen, I'm covered in bruises, so I'm not standing on some pedestal about dexterity. I'm just saying, like, that's your dump stat. Yeah, that and con. I really, sometimes I just eat too much, and then I'm I'm out of the game for, like, three hours. (laughs) Oh, honey. All right, fine. We'll up your decks. We'll up your... You know what? I'm giving you strength because uh, you just don't quit. You don't. Oh, inner strength. I'm putting that inner strength. Yeah, yeah. 
If you need me to push open a door, though, that's going to be another person. That's not, I'm not the one. Right, but you'll still try. Oh, I will. All right, well, this has been Make Your D&D Character Sheet Hour. This has been Hype Up Your Friend through D&D Stats Hour. Thank you for coming to our TED Talk. Back to Selkies. Real quick, I would love to see everyone make their D&D stats, but I want them to make it as if their best friend was making it for them. Yeah, like I'm going to make one for Rowan. Look for it on the Discord. Oh, I'll make one for you. Okay, and back to Selkies. <laughs> as Duncan Williamson wrote in his book, Tales of the Seal People, Scottish Folk Tales, the importance of the Silky is its part in the other world or afterlife. For instance, if you were a fisherman and you lived with your daddy in a little croft by the seaside and you had your brother, your grandfather, or your uncle lost at sea, what would you do if their body was not found? But if you thought for one instant that he never returned because he had joined the seal people, he'd become one of them, then how would you feel? Now this is the legend. That's why it was told to make people feel comforted if their loved ones were never found. They probably joined the seal people, became seal folk, and you'll see them again. That's the wholesome part for you, Trace. Thank you. I love it. It's very comforting. Some tales say that selkies are the sealed bodies that house condemned souls who have committed a great sin. Another theme of, of unclean souls in these creatures. Mm -hmm. In another tale from the Faroe Islands, those who died by suicide were transformed into seals. Others say that selkies are fallen angels. While these explanations likely became prevalent after Christianity became a dominant religion in parts of northern Europe, older explanations were never abandoned. Many see the selkies as members of the fae community that extend back into the early days of the land— because of the various beliefs, it is told that to kill a seal would bring misfortune to the perpetrator. I have heard that one before. You can't kill a seal because you might be killing a selkie and that would cause a curse upon you. Which you would think my main character would know, but, you know, blind with rage, I guess. I love the way you told that, that he felt like he was owed something and blinded by that. Like there are a few things like righteous indignancy to spur you on to something. That's true. So here's where things get cool. Oh, this is, so now we're getting cool. It wasn't cool before, and now we're getting cool. Because, like, I thought it was pretty cool, so. I'm, okay. So, <laughs> in Shetland, there is no distinction between selkies and creatures known as the finfolk. An important detail to note when we look into the history of the selkie myth while in Orkney, the finfolk are described as dark and malicious, in contrast to the selkie's fairly harmless beauty, it was not always this way. Finfolk are aquatic shapeshifters, only they have sorcerous powers and are incredibly territorial. They are known to look for a spouse or a lifelong servant by snatching children from the shores or sailors from their boats. Where the males are tall and, quote, gloomy in appearance, the women start their lives as beautiful mermaids. Where a selkie might be docile and amorous, finfolk will take what they want. 
They can transform into anything from a sea creature to some floating fabric to trick a human. Should you like to avoid their violence, you can distract them with silver or paint the bottom of your ship with a cross, which they fear above all else. The Finn wives in particular desire a human husband because it slows down their aging process so that it takes much longer for them to become the feared Finn wife hag, as you'll remember from my story. I did not know that these creatures exist when I originally conceptualized this story, and I would like to thank history for providing me that wonderful detail because I love to imagine this sort of conflicting mythical creature being territorial and using their spooky wiles to get what they want via a useless human. I mean, when in doubt... (laughs) History will provide. All you have to do is just, like, look to history, and it's more fantastical than anything you can come up with. And I love now knowing this and thinking back to your story and the way that it's it, the unspoken drive for the Finwife had being the territorial nature of the same shores that the Selkies went mm-hmm. upon. And I don't actually have sort of a set in stone appearance for them. I've seen in lots of images and descriptions. So I went a little rogue with my description. So no one take that as official canon. But I thought that they ought to be creepy. Yeah, if it's a Finwife hag, might as well lean into it, you know. And we should talk about the fact that we have selkies, which are docile, amorous, seal women who will love you and marry you and have your children if you can just take something that is theirs fundamentally, a part of their body that they need. Yeah, it's problematic if you think about it for more than even five seconds. And then we have the Finwife hag, who if she (laughs) who's horrible and if she can't get a husband she becomes old and ugly. Wow, when you take a step back, it's really stories told by men, huh? (laughs) just (laughs) that's just got that's got patriarchy signed sealed and delivered right all on that story there huh you know either you're a beautiful selkie who will do anything if you just like take away her bodily autonomy or you're autonomous because you're a gross old hag who couldn't find a husband proud hag oh proud hag Proud hag, as we always say. (laughs) Here's where the real history comes in yet again. Throughout Orkney Jar's various writings on this topic, they say, and this is a long one, quote, The tales of Selkies are confined to a relatively narrow area around northern and western Britain, an area known to have been a Norse seaway and an area of Norwegian settlement. Orkney folklore now regards the Selkie folk and the Finn folk as completely separate, both clearly having the same source. The people the early Norwegian settlers referred to as Finns. These were the Sami people of Scandinavia, feared and respected as great magicians. The Sami led a nomadic life with a completely different culture and society to that of their Norwegian neighbors. They lived primarily in the far north of Norway in a territory known as Finnmark. 
It has been suggested by Orcadian scholars in the past that the traditions surrounding the Norway Finns were brought to Orkney by Finnair, slaves or thralls. This, however, seems to go against certain Old Norse texts, which often place Sami in positions of influence, even marrying into prominent Norse families and dynasties. Whichever the historical truth, local tradition at least has it that Finnair did make their way to the island and their physical traits were common knowledge into the 19th and 20th century, with some individuals, usually those said to possess otherworldly powers, claiming descent from Norway Finns. But over time, the lore became confused, and from Finnair, a race of potent magicians, their traditions corrupted into the mythical Finnfolk, who, although retaining much of the traditions surrounding the Finns, were turned into an aquatic race over a confusion over the term Finn. Oh my god, that makes so much sense. That explains why there's so much more magical and powerful. Because their origin was from the idea of a magical race, and then people just heard Finn and went, oh, fish, okay, cool, great, so magic fish, got it. Yes. The first recorded sighting of a, quote, Finn man, or Sami, Inuit, in Orkney, was in 1682. It's speculated that the Inuit community was traveling south because of a mini-ice age, which caused creatures which thrived in colder climates, along with the ice flows, to move into the area. There's speculation that the magical seal skins in the stories of the Selkies were inspired by the use of seal pelts in Sami garments. So there you can see the overlap between Selkies and Finfolk and the way that they sort of split off. Today, Sami inhabit northern parts of Sweden, Finland, Norway, and parts of Russia, where fear once evolved into Finfolk mythology. Like many indigenous people around the world, they face discrimination from individuals and from within public policy. So... I never knew that the Selkies, much less the Finfolk, could have possibly been inspired by any real people. Real people. Yeah. There's also some websites I read that said that they might have thought the Selkie and the Finfolk or both came from Spanish sailors because they had dark hair, but... It wasn't as backed up as this theory in any capacity, so... I mean, just the idea of the seal pelts in the garments is so compelling to me. Because you can take them on and off, and it could add to the idea of this, like, mystique or magic. The way that one website sort of described it was that... Um, so the Finful often have rowboats that they use and one of their magical powers is that they can row long distances very okay. quickly and with sh little work mm -hmm. and the sami people of course had kayaks right and so that's linked and then on the other hand the seal pelts um one writer described it as you know if they're wet they have to take them off and dry them and that might be why people say, you know, they remove their seal pelts and mm -hmm. become 
So there's a lot of stories around that. I'm not an official historian. I didn't find any, like, Smithsonian magazine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel you on that. Mm -hmm. But I thought that it was definitely worth including because history always provides. History always provides. (laughs) So this has been our episode on... I'm going Water Wives. Ooh, ooh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, Water Wives, the story of the patriarchy. <laughs> Aren't they all, though? The damp story of the patriarchy. <laughs> but we haven't said it in a while, so in case you forgot, this episode was sponsored <laughs> because we're a very official podcast. Mm-hmm. Thank you again to White Light Productions Sea Glass Jewelry. And remember, if you're shopping for presents for others or maybe yourself. Definitely yourself. Definitely for yourself. Use code WFFALL10 for 10% off your order at White Light Productions. Head to Seaglass US, that's S-E-A-G-L-A-S-S dot U-S, and use our code WFFALL10 on your order and tell our jewelry friends how much you love their work, and how much you appreciate them supporting this podcast. It has been really fun to do a series specifically centered around the ocean because some of my favorite myths are from the ocean. They're just so inherently spooky. They, I think they, they're they so good because they can range, I don't know, they touch on a primal fear. They touch on a sense of adventure You know, you think of sailors and the adventures they have, but then you think of the fear of the water and what could happen. Like, it's just, Mm. it gives you so many options all set within this thing we all know, which is the idea of vast water. There's also very little comfort kind of in the world of the seas. It's very harsh. You know, you've got that into the unknown, Mm -hmm. but you're also sunburned and chapped and damp. You can't drink the water of the ocean. No, and you've got scurvy for sure. Yeah. Hey, we're sort of hinting at our next topic for our last Stories from the Sea episode. If you can guess it, bonus points, but do stick around. There is one more wonderful sponsored episode from White Light Productions coming your way. In the meantime, Tracy? Yes? Tell me something good. (laughs) My something good is that... We recently had Halloween. As we said, we're recording this uh, the day before the election. So Halloween is, you know, just behind us. And Rowan and myself and a bunch of our friends had a virtual Halloween celebration. It was the best. (laughs) It was so much fun. If any of you have ever seen the show Taskmaster, it was inspired (laughs) by that. It is so funny. You can watch full All the full episodes on YouTube, highly recommend it. Highly, highly. Series 5 is so good. So it was inspired by Taskmaster. So we all got one task to do before the party and then a bunch of tasks during the party. And we all competed. And Casey was the judge. And the points didn't matter. And it was so goofy and so fun. And just a really, really lovely way to spend Halloween with all my friends. It was so... It was just so silly. I, 
<laughs> I used my last roll of toilet paper to make a toilet paper mummy. <laughs> you sure did. And you got you got good points for that. I did okay. I listen, Tracy's being kind. I think I did the worst out of all the Halloween. I mean, the points don't matter. You're not allowed to care about the points, but I also do think I did <laughs> so badly. I'll share one of the pictures from it that I had to create as one of my challenges. <laughs> <laughs> I'll share that on the Discord. So that's my something good. Hey, Rowan. Yeah. Why don't you just uh, tell me something good? You see, we do this every week. And, well, my something good was going to be Among Us because... It can still be Among Us. Okay, cool. It was really nice for me to play a video game with a bunch of people where I wasn't stressed out that my actual mechanical game skill would get in the way of the fun of playing or make people not want to play with me because Among Us is simple. All you have to do is click and move. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm good at deception games and I enjoy them, but there wa I could not mess up so much that anyone would not want me to play with no, them. No, I'm proof of that. There's no there was no one worse <laughs> at being the imposter or so confident in incorrectly calling out people as the imposter. You really were. I was really, I was pretty bold on that, on those. You were. I'm also excited. I feel like you unlocked this cool corner of Discord for me. You just keep letting me into Discord groups. That's all Seb, our wonderful mod in our Discord, bringing... Seb's the best mod ever. Seb's a great mod. He's the best, so... Oh my gosh, you know what? Here's another something good. I'm doing two. Okay. So Seb Armad is from, well, he's in Australia. He's from Canada. And I had only ever interacted with him in writing. And this week, we all had our first group call for the podcast. And I was so giddy to hear Seb talk. <laughs> and Tracy was just breezing over it. Because I here's the thing. I've known Seb for years, so... For me, as soon as you jumped on the call, I was like, hey, what's up? You know, jumping onto things. And it took me a while to realize that these two people I've known for so long <laughs> didn't know each other. And I had to pause and say, like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Rowan, this must be a big moment for you. <laughs> Let's acknowledge this. Well, Seb and I chat now, so. Yeah, you sure showed me. <laughs> <laughs> we also got to talk with a couple of our patrons, too, in, <gasps> yes. in Among Us, and that was so cool. You guys are the best. You made that so much fun. You're all so, you're all so good at that game. And we yes. will, for anyone who couldn't make it who wanted to, we're definitely going to do that again. Um, for anyone who's been curious or hesitating to join the Patreon, please consider it. It helps us out so much, and it's... Our Discord is such a fun place to be, and we try to really make it worth your support. So we try to send you bloopers and fun stuff. and We are working on some really fun new community things that we can all do together. Mm -hmm. We have been cutting bloopers of us just being so dorky as little inside scoops for our patrons. And our Mythic patrons get to suggest episode topics to us, so we're working on... Also, some polls and ways that they get to tell us what we have to do. So, Oh, yeah. Just so you guys know, the Mythic-level patrons picked the New Jersey Devil for me to do for our story. 
<laughs> they also <laughs> technically picked Mothman for me. Well, they they said they wanted Mothman out of any any cryptid, and you had already claimed that. <laughs> right. So then I said, what else? <laughs> and sent out a poll. And they picked the New Jersey Devil. And on that note, really quick before we wrap up, we have actually a bunch of new listeners. Tracy, I don't know if you got to look at these numbers, but we are almost at 200 listeners, which puts us two-thirds of the way to our 300-listener goal of getting whiskey to share. Ooh. Oh, we're so close. We are. Share it with all your friends, please. We really want whiskey. So this is your moment, everyone. You voted. You worked on the politics. You're doing great. So now, while you're resting, before we hit the ground running again, just quickly, in your daily conversations, be like, hey, dear friend, hey, Neighbor who I hate, have you listened to this podcast that I love? You should, because I want them to have whiskey. And don't explain it any more than that. Nope, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) And for everyone who's new, we are so happy to have you. For all of our super close friends in the Discord, we are so happy to have you. And on that note, thank you so much for joining us. And remember, stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do... Tell a friend. Or tell that foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.